Welcome back to Lead Up Katie Cast. With me today are my colleagues Chris Bailey, Assistant Principal at Stockton Junior High, and Jake LeBlanc, Dr. Jake LeBlanc from Katie Junior High, Principal over there, uh, and myself, Mark McCord, Principal at Stockton Junior High. Welcome back. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, hello. Howdy, howdy. Glad to be back. All right, we are uh, going to conclude our three uh, podcast series, our third in the series on engagement. Uh, we've been uh, working through and looking at the work of Jennifer Fredericks and using that support from her text, Eight Myths of Student Disengagement. And so we're going to be jumping into the last four myths today. Um, if you will remember, there are actually uh, three big groups that she sort of teases out related to engagement uh, with students, one being behavioral engagement. And that's really that, that idea of being compliant and on task. Uh, which is obviously something that's a, it's a wonderful thing to have. However, it does not necessarily mean that the, the student is well connected with the class and learning at a high level. Uh, to do that, you've got to move on to, to some other different levels of engagement, one being cognitive engagement, this idea that they are uh, connected to the content and uh, they're, they're stretching their thinking and they're thinking at high levels. And the other, the, the last one is that highest level, that emotional engagement, really connecting with, uh, with the teacher, with the students in the class, with the class itself, with the school, so that strong emotional engagement. And so uh, these, these myths cover that range of different types of engagement. So myth number five uh, is focus on content and don't make it personal. So, um, you know, that, that reminds me of, you know, this idea of relationships, you know, devaluing relationships. If that myth were true, if it weren't a myth, uh, we might really say, well, you know, I'm here, I'm a, I'm a science teacher. I, I teach science, and I'm all about getting the content across. The, and the kids, you know, they need to get, get with the program. They just need to, you know, work harder. They need to care more. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm a master at teaching this content. Um, I think flipping it and saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a science teacher, the, the emphasis on teacher uh, would imply a greater connection with the kids, right? I mean, a true commitment to making sure that they learn. And at fun, fundamentally, we know that it all starts with a good relationship, you know. And I know there's that the cliche now about uh, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I, I know we've all heard that and said it probably many times. But the bottom line is, it's very true. And one of, that, one of the first things that I thought of when when you sounded off that myth was, and I, I, in fact, I wrote it down: is that relationships are a must. And just about every Every podcast that we've had, every educational thought or anything educational, there has to be a relationship when we're talking about the pedagogy, the instruction, the discourse related to whatever subject you might be talking about because if there is no relationship, there's not going to really, really be any learning. Uh, and I love the way how Frederick's kind of ratchets up the levels of engagement because you know we, we we've known and we've seen and we have wallflowers in our classrooms that are behaviorally engaged but there's not a thought mm -hmm. or an emotion that's leaning towards right. whatever topic it is that's being discussed so you know it just what a myth what a, what a horrible thought if that were true uh, because there's no way to to engage a child uh, into whatever the content may be unless you have that relationship and and you can basically monitor a lot of this is you know goes back to the teacher uh, 
teachers who have those good relationships naturally pick up on that if it, whether it's just basic behavioral compliance or engagement if it's cognitive but they want to stretch you to that emotional mm -hmm. level so that you take ownership of that learning and that's kind of what learning is all about right yeah it, it's a human business we can't we can't approach this uh, like input output you know we put in and then um, students are going to to output what we want them to to compute and then we move on about what we do it's a human business and there is variation and there's variability and there's diversity and so I believe that the only way that we're going to build trust to get, uh, you know, students involved in, in the work that we want them to do, uh, i.e. learning, uh, is, to, is to understand them, understand where they come from. And I think that there are two places that I've observed that this is, uh, this is most crucial. Uh, the first one being in, in cultural diversity, uh, you know, it, understanding um, the the background of a child can help them help you understand uh, how to approach them. Mm -hmm. uh, it can it can help you to uh, to um, avoid misunderstandings by just from the way that they were raised. And so understanding understanding that the different ways that, that people might think or the different ways that people might react to a certain situation or a certain topic, uh, you know, is, is important to being able to reach a, an individual child, I think. And the other one being um, how we interact or how we build a relationship with the quote difficult student. Mm -hmm. um, it's very it's very natural and very easy to build a relationship and say, look, I build relationships mm -hmm. with the students that seek you out to build the relationship. But mm -hmm. what are we doing with that wallflower that you talked about, Jake? Um, that sits in the corner um, and just does their work. Are we are we trying to engage them in the way that they want to be engaged? They may not want to mm -hmm. have a boisterous conversation, mm -hmm. but uh, but there's a way that we can interact with them. Maybe there's uh, some type of um, you know writing activity that they want to do that's differentiated for the way that they learn or um, whatever that might be or the other side of that the behavioral difficult behaviorally difficult student how are we um, approaching them every day with a new attitude and a new uh, belief in the work that they can do um, sometimes we're uh, we're building the relationship all right but it mm -hmm. might not be um, what we what we think that we're building. So how we approach cultural diversity mm -hmm. on our campuses and how we approach those difficult students, I think, are two areas that I know I can improve. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we can improve as an industry, as a as a uh, educational leaders. You know, and I'm glad you you brought up that point about the difficult student. You know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time uh, reflecting on as educators and uh, as teachers, obviously. Uh, are you know why aren't these kids being successful in my mm -hmm. class right I mean we are we are driven we have that that professional and that moral imperative to you know reach the kids and help them learn um, and as we reflect on what's not happening a lot of times I think uh, a natural thing that teachers will do or that educators do that we do as humans is we reflect on you know the, the instructional 
uh, design? How do we do? Did we did we do an engaging activity? And all those things are super important. Yeah. But with that really challenging child, I think a lot of times you have to be reflective about the relationship and think about how am I being purposeful hmm. and reconnecting to this child that yeah. maybe I have disconnected from before they have disconnected from me. Yeah, you know, and I think that comes more naturally at the younger ages, you know, when there are less inhibitions with kids, it's easier to connect, they're uh, easier to more lovable. entertain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, they're cuter unless they're not uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and being that difficult child. But uh, it seems uh, like, and I, um, I'm remembering something that, um, that Sir Ken Robinson said, we, we tend to educate the creativity out of kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that is true with relationships, too. We tend to get a little bit more cynical, a little bit more hardened, a little bit more distant as we move through the grade levels. Um, think of the difference between a kindergarten teacher and a, um, a senior uh, math uh, you know, teacher or senior English teacher. There's a difference there in the relationship we build. And I, I'm generalizing, so please, you know, if you teach senior English, don't think I hate you because I don't. I love you very much. But, uh, but think about the difference there. And so how we're connecting might look different, but the need for connection is no different. And I like the, the fact that you pointed out, Brother Chris, the cultural diversity and kind of there are ways that we can approach students. And, and also one of the things that, especially this time of year, I mean, kids are tired, teachers are tired. It's just we're winding down. Uh, but it also talks and speaks to the ways not to approach it. Mm-hmm. The, better, the, more, the better you understand a student, the better you're going to understand the ways not to approach and and I think you know I would be remiss having the elementary through secondary experience that I have uh, I'm not saying it's easy it's never easy for anybody but working with a 25 to 1 ratio in the elementary mm-hmm. level mm-hmm. which is predominantly sure. the, the case in Texas I can't speak for other states uh, versus the 120 to 50 or however many your secondary load might be, it's a little more difficult to establish those relationships. But you you just have, you know, it's it's how you carry yourself. And obviously a really good perceptive teacher is going to know who he or she's going to have to work the hardest with or the Mm -hmm. hardest on relative to creating that relationship. And he or she's going to have positive relationships in general. So just to make that point. Moving on to the... Uh, sixth myth, soci- socializing with peers detracts from student engagement. And I, my immediate thought was a cooperative learning uh, workshop I took many, many moons ago. Uh, and sitting there for a couple of days, <coughs> pardon me, and basically all they talked about was group work and not just group work generic group work but specific Roles structural and management of yeah. a group and how important that was and this was this was a long time ago folks uh, but just with that in mind and, and the big term today is collaboration and then the first thing that really came to mind or the first question is who among us that's sitting here with me my, my compadres and who in the field of education works in isolation? Mm-hmm. Right. Is, there, is there a job that can afford isolation in your work? Mm-hmm. And the, the obvious answer to that is no, I hope. Uh, <laughs> that being the case, why, do we expect, why, why would we expect that of our students? Mm-hmm. And if we're going to be 
productive in our work, not only as students, but as we matriculate through high school and beyond, we're going to have to be able to socialize with our sure. peers, co-workers, to find effective solutions to the challenge challenges that are before us. So I will, um, since you, you quoted Sir Ken Robinson, a couple of his quotes also are, are resonating as uh, Jake was talking, and uh, these are a couple of different quotes. Uh, Collaboration is the stuff of growth, mm. um, and all great learning occurs in groups. And I, I think about my own personal experience, and uh, I'm coming, coming off of a, uh, of a presentation that was very, uh, it was truly a presentation, so there really was not, it's three hours of, uh, going through slides and you know sort of that death by PowerPoint and it was very important material so I'm not trying to diminish that but the inability to process and have a conversation with my peers and make meaning of what it is that I was hearing was you know I'll just say it was a detriment to my learning um, you know and so and frustrating for me personally because yeah. I, I know um, my colleagues that were sitting around me uh, they've had experiences and the conversation would have been rich uh, if we would have had it. And I, I think that uh, a lot of times if we are speaking at our learners instead of providing opportunities for them to speak with one another, uh, we are really missing out. We're, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight the tide or are you going to roll with the tide? You know, mm -hmm. and that's kind of, uh, we know that our, our uh, students want to be social. I mean, what, why wouldn't we leverage that uh, for learning and I'm not saying that we don't paint the lines that they talk within right we need them to be talking academically uh, and are they at times going to get off task uh, yes they are don't we all sometimes get off sure. task you know but uh, you know those times to process and think and to talk and make meaning uh, and, and when it's directed and facilitated by a master teacher is in my opinion as good as it gets and I think one of the most difficult things sometimes to allow, you know, know how much um, autonomy to give, so to speak, you know, in terms of how far you let the, the conversation, um, you know, go down a rabbit hole or, or how to bring that back. Because uh, obviously we have we have standards that we have to teach and we have, you know, uh, timelines that we have to keep. And so that that is such an art when you see a teacher that's able to to elaborate on the teachable moment, um, but also wrap that into the skill that should be taught that day. Um, another couple of things come to my mind in this world uh, in terms of, uh, of social interactions. I think uh, about a couple of things. I think about the, the pre-K conversation that's happening in the Texas mm -hmm. legislature right now and, and how important early literacy and early childhood education is and uh, some of the conversations I've had in my house and with other colleagues are about, um, about you know, kids at that age, at four years old. Well, you know, when, when my son Isaac uh, goes to school, um, he comes home, when he goes to pre-K, he comes home and he talks about the things that his other pre-K peers did that day. He very, sometimes he talks about uh, the teacher, and he loves the teacher, but he talks about the interactions that he had with the kids. He is learning, mm -hmm. and he is also teaching others the social interactions that are, uh, well, I hope he's teaching others the appropriate interactions, and he's learning all the bad <laughs> ones from others. But anyway, um, but, but he's learning so much more just naturally through the interaction with his peers than he is 
necessarily from the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important as we continue to matriculate, like you were talking about, Jacob. And the the other thing that I think about that I that I'm, I'm I see a lot of, and and I and I think that. Uh, there's nowhere in education that hasn't gotten the point that collaboration is key. Mm-hmm. And I, I go from classroom to classroom, not just on our campus and on other campuses, and I see almost all the time a cooperative seating environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great, uh, but I will say that that's just a first step. Mm-hmm. If we're only seated cooperatively, but, but the activities and the lessons mm-hmm. uh, are not designed for cooperative learning, then it really defeats the purpose. You might as well put the kids in rows. And by the way, I don't think that kids in rows is a bad thing either. I think there's a time and place for that, for one-on-one teacher-led instruction, and we move on to something else. Um, But think about the activities that are happening in the cooperative learning environment. And just putting four desks together and leaving them in that environment all year long um, is may or may not, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, it it creates some struggle sometimes, right? Because if the teacher's... A focus is to keep them quiet, and you sit sit them all together. That's right. So now you've created a fight that you don't want to have, yeah. you know. And so you needed to leverage that and sit them together in that way. One of the one of the things that I thought of when when you were speaking earlier, Mark, just made me uh, think of two two very important things: time. There's never enough of that, and then pace. And I had the distinct pleasure of sitting through that same training you sat through just the a.m. session instead of the p.m. session and it was very frustrating because we it just stimulated questions just the topic itself was it just required Mm -hmm. questioning and and that to me applies to the classroom if and and, and then the the presenter pointed out you know I'm I'm trying to get a full day's worth of information into three hours Mm -hmm. well do teachers do that sometimes Sure. Do we do that sometimes yeah. in our beginning of the year uh, professional development? We've got X number of days. We've got X amount of material. We've got to get it all in there. Uh, and I think that's such such a crime uh, to to the teacher, to the students, obviously. But again, timing and pacing is so they're so critical. And if if you if you and, and it all goes back to planning. Because mm-hmm. the, the master teachers plan for those things, plan for those interruptions, plan for that right. inquiry, plan for that emotional buy-in, that emotional engagement. And that only occurs, you know, as Brother uh, Chris pointed out, I mean, he's, he hears it every time his son comes home because that's what's happening mm-hmm. right. in that primary classroom. Mm-hmm. Those kids are learning from one another, and they're talking. They're doing a whole lot of talking about right. modeling. And, and, All about and that social emotion. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. And make no mistake, that's happening with uh, your children. If you have uh, you know, school age and teenage children and maybe even adult children, that, that's happening with them too. They're, they're just conditioned to not be as open about it and talk about it. They're socially normed that it's not as cool <laughs> of a thing to do, right? Yep. Um, so, so that is happening. And so whether they talk openly about it, and some do. Again, I'm making generalizations, but... Whether they talk about it or not, those peer-to-peer interactions are so critical to their development, not just socially, but absolutely intellectually as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about my doctoral program right now. Um, I get every bit probably more uh, out of the robust conversations with my cohort mm-hmm. colleagues as I do 
from these amazing uh, experts that come in. And, and I'm telling you, they are top-notch people that are coming through, and I get a lot from them. But the rich conversations from, from my cohort members is every bit as valuable in learning the world that I'm, that I'm studying. So as we move on to the next myth, there's only so much a teacher can do. And so what this is talking about is, uh, to, to put it bluntly, is having low expectations for kids. And this is easy to slip into. And, uh, and certainly this is not about the blame game or saying that, uh, that people don't do enough. Um, but it's easy to slip into uh, setting the standard lower because of either an environmental or an intellectual or any kind of uh, setback or barrier that a student might face. A lot of this uh, occurs in our, um, our environments that have high, high rates of poverty. Uh, this occurs a lot with our students that have special needs. Um, and it's something that we have to continue to, to think about and overcome that uh, we cannot make excuses for what we think that a child can achieve. And we can't set limits on what we think a child can achieve. And that's true for engagement as well. The first thought that comes to my mind relative to this myth in particular is Covey's work. Uh, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a challenge. I, we talk about it as leaders. Uh, I, I do. I can't speak for all leaders. But when you, when you consider the circle of concern versus the circle of control, we spend so much time fussing, discussing, griping, and moaning, and you know what else, mm-hmm. about things that we have absolutely no control mm-hmm. of. Yeah. yeah. It, whereas if we spent just half the energy on the things that we do control, our preparation, our planning, our lessons, our instruction, we, it would make tons of difference difference relative to the outcomes uh, regardless of the type of students that we're dealing with but absolutely brother Chris hit it on the head I mean those kids that are economically disadvantaged that come to our doors at the youngest ages with the, the, the slightest experience are at a deficit mm-hmm. and it's we're constantly trying to make up well one of the ways we can make up is to engage these mm-hmm. students and I can't think of, I've never heard a teacher say, well, I've just done too much. <laughs> sure. There's mm-hmm. nothing, I mean, I've heard a lot say, what else can I do? I mean, we've, and I've, I've probably said that myself a time or two. What else can I do for this particular student, for this teacher? Well, and it's not a reflective question I'm asking myself. It's an excuse that I'm giving myself. That's right. I'm, I've done enough. That's right. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about specific strategies that, you know, we, we could do, uh, that we should do, uh, that really show the student that, you know what, your engagement and your, your learning, your success is kind of a non-negotiable in my classroom. Mm-hmm. So we don't fall into that, that soft bias of soft expectations, right, or lower expectations. So, um, you know, we are working hard with uh, engagement strategies specifically uh, I think these are right in line with that some that really come to my mind are this idea of you know teaching kids to say 
uh, a response other than I don't know, right? This idea that what could you do, right? Could asking for more information or could I, uh, can I talk to a friend? Uh, but the key to that is always going back and having that student that did not know the answer repeat what the answer was. So yeah. again, that, that very clearly uh, helps them understand that we're going to take the time so that you can also answer this correctly. And you know, whether you're uh, randomizing students and again, making sure that everyone has that opportunity to think, coupling it with think time, uh, those kinds of things that, that you do that are very specific, you know, the thumbs up, the thumbs down, where everyone in the whole class has to give a signal about what they believe is the right answer. Um, that, that's really powerful, but we can't just ask it and ask for the signal and not expect every single student to respond, right? right? That total response right. signal. And it just indicates and it sends that clear message as the teacher in the room that every one of you learners is important and I am invested in your success. And it's shown through my teaching and what it is that I expect of you. And my attention to each, each and every one. That's right. In, in, uh, in Frederick's book, in this chapter on Myth 7, she gives a couple of tables. One is how teachers communicate low expectations and then another one about characteristics of a warm, demanding teacher, kind of the opposite of that. And I love that. I won't read all the way through them, but you know, one of the uh, one of the examples on the low expectations, calling on low expe- expectation students less frequently than high expectation students. And so I think that's an example of you know, it's it's not um, it's not something that we try to do, and I, and I don't think there's a teacher out there that just says, ah, we you know this is a kid he just can't learn. I'm giving up on him. I hope not. Um, but, uh, but sometimes we fall into that implicit bias and, and something we don't think about. And so having a system, like uh, you're saying, Mark, for randomizing or having a system to check, uh, you know, um, systematically who's been called on so that, so that you are getting those kids who might be overlooked. Um, and then on the, on the, the warm de- characteristics of a warm, demanding teacher, I love this, uh, that the teacher searches for solutions to problems rather than blaming students. And, and I, will, I will be the first to admit that I am guilty of that as well, both on the student and the staff side of it, that um, you know, it's very natural to go straight to blame. You know, they shouldn't have done this because. And sometimes if we take a step back and try to think through um, how we could have avoided that, how, how my practice could have been different in preparing this student or this teacher for success, uh, I think we might come to a, a different conclusion with what that uh, with what that child or what that staff member may actually need. And it's interesting, just listening to you as a as a leader. We're all leaders. Uh, we're all administrators. And as I sit here and think to myself, I. I, I I catch myself in that trap. There are certain teachers when I'm having a staff meeting that I can count on. If I if I if I make trying to make a point and I need somebody to respond, I know I can count on so and so to respond because mm-hmm. they always do. Mm-hmm. Or if they something needs to be done in the building, I can always go to so right. so. So we've got to we got to be very cognizant that we can do the same thing as adults, and we want to be very wary wary of not overworking our hardest working teachers yeah. mm-hmm. or leaving those that. That, that would be willing, but maybe have never been asked out. Just, and I, and I think always backing off and thinking about that at our level, you know, uh, we have to be very careful not to be hypocritical, you know, or uh, do we do the same things with our teachers and just say, oh, well, that the teacher 
uh, just doesn't care. And, yeah. uh, and that leads us right into the myth number eight, that student engagement is a student choice. Yeah, that, that just, that, that just, that gets all over me. I, I, <laughs> there, there's, there's no, you know, a student choice is, I, I'd rather not go to school today for mm-hmm. a lot of kids. Uh, that's a student choice that they'd love to make at any given moment. But it's up to the teacher, and again, it goes back to preparation, it goes back to planning. I mean, you, you can go into a classroom within a, a very short period of time, make the determination as to whether or not that teacher had prepared for that particular lesson. And I'm not saying you're gonna have a home run lesson every day, 178 days a year. I don't think that's humanly possible because this this work is really hard, but uh, it's up to the teacher to, I'm not gonna say force engagement, but create an environment where engagement mm-hmm. is the baseline expectation, as you alluded right. to earlier, uh, Brother Mark did. You know, everybody has to be, the expectation is that I'm gonna be accountable for this information, I just don't know when mm-hmm. it's gonna happen, mm-hmm. I just don't know when. Well, the same holds for engagement. You know, everybody's going to be accountable for the work. Mm. Uh, Today may be your day Mm -hmm. to present, to Mm -hmm. answer, to do this, that, and the other. But uh, left up to the students, I would I would think there would be lots of disengagement. Yeah, and and this was this was absolutely the most um, inspiring part of the work that I did as a band director in an inclusive activity like that, where um, you know every single child has an active role in creating something that was not there before the performance and every single person's contribution to that matters and so uh, you, as a band director uh, and as a, as a staff we didn't have a choice um, to to say oh he's just not going to get it or she's just not going to get it. I'm going to use she instead of he because they get picked on go. more in terms of disengagement <laughs> Uh, she's just not going to get it, so uh, we'll just let we'll just let her play the wrong notes. Um, well, then that affects every other kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's true for sports as well. Um, but um, you know, even in that environment, and uh, you know, I know that every child is important, but even in that environment, you can pull a kid that's not mm-hmm. performing well. You know, on a band concert, every kid was performing. And so every kid had to had to be at that level of of engagement in the in the activity and in the process. And so um, the point is, we set the bar, and everyone makes it past the bar. Mm-hmm. Now, some might go beyond the bar, and some might uh, need more work to get to the bar. But every person gets to the bar, no exceptions, no how. If I start from uh, well, there's, uh, you know, what, what level of uh, failure is an acceptable level of failure, you know? Uh, do I start with, uh, you know, I know 20% of my kids aren't going to pass the STAR test, so you know what, I'm only going to teach 80% effort, or I'm only going to pick these 80, 80% to, to really focus on. We have to come in every single day, myself included, with the expectation that every person in this building can give 100% to get every child to the bar. And, and I'll just conclude with, uh, you know, I'm, thinking, I'm just thinking about how this might sound to teachers, and we're certainly not here to, to blame teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here to celebrate teachers. Uh, but I will say, you know, as, as sort of a, a warning, if, if in your mind, or certainly if you're saying it out loud, something along the lines of they just don't care, 
uh, that's a big red flag. If that's something that you're thinking uh, or that you're processing through, what, what I think we would all ask that you do is to kind of back up a little bit and say, okay, they, they appear not to care. Mm. Why is that? What is it that's going on? Is it, yeah. is, is it the relationship that I need to build? Uh, is it really their, their cognitive skill set? Are there, is there readiness there? Do I need to really back this down even though this is a six foot tall, looks like a grown man <laughs> sitting in seventh grade, he's only reading on a second grade level. Do you know that? And so what are you going to do to adjust how you reach that child? Right. Uh, because that's very different. So really being that, that more of a diagnostic approach to like why is it that they're, they're sort of displaying this disengagement and then what can I do? And so often, I just last thing I'll uh, encourage you to do, and this is something I encourage us all to do, is just to sit and have an honest, open conversation with the kid. Uh, because so often that's what we miss. We have all these suppositions and we have all these things about, you know, we're going to do this, that, or the other. But if we just have a real conversation and sharing your frustration with them and making sure they understand that you are there to support them, you're not going to give up on them and show that through your behaviors uh, you have a serious potential to impact that child for the long term. Yeah, and I and I will say that this is not like a off on switch. This is a, you know, this is a spectrum where we can get better at these skills. Like I still struggle with this. I I have those thoughts. I've prob- I probably I know I've had that thought this week <laughs> in terms of I, oh gosh, do they just really even want to be here? That's human, you know. And and so this is not like a I flip it on and I think about it and now it's fixed. It's something that we have to daily engage ourselves in the uh, assuming good intentions mm-hmm. and being reflective on our own practice and their practice you know mm-hmm. um, good point mark the the point is they may not care but what is getting them to that point why don't they care and how can we yeah, how can we move forward how can we move forward going off of your example and I'll, I'm done but I just can't I would be remiss we're in band orchestra choir UIL season mm-hmm. Go to a sight reading session in band or orchestra, choir, whatever, and mm-hmm. think that less than a hundred percent is good enough. Sure, that's not sweepstakes, <laughs> folks. Yeah, I've learned a lot uh, in junior high, and that's the one thing, the one place I don't think I could have cut it as, <laughs> an, as an educator because that's hard stuff and it's good stuff. Uh, you know, as an athlete, I could get away with, you know, maybe missing an assignment now and then. But if you miss a note mm-hmm. in band and UIL competition, you don't get a warning. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Jake. <laughs> I'm so proud yeah, of you. Well, we really appreciate you joining us today here at Lead Up Katie Cass. I uh, want to invite you to listen to us on whatever your favorite uh, application is to listen to podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Mark McCord 10 uh, or at Sticks Bailey or at Jacob L E B 66.